Waking up to Estonia's energy challenge. Interview with Ingrid Nielsen, episode 70. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Ingrid Nielsen, a renewable energy advocacy expert for the Estonian Fund for Nature, ELF in short. It says a lot about the importance of energy when an organization with a deep biological foundation and a mission to protect nature also addresses the role of renewable energy. This week's conversation with Ingrid straddles these fields of environmental protection and the deployment of new energy technologies. There was a reason I traveled to Estonia, and this was to gain a greater understanding about how this Baltic country is shifting away from its heritage of the Soviet Union and its ties with Russia. Each country, as we are exploring in recent episodes of this podcast, had different relationships and ties with the Soviet Union. How each of these relationships was navigated was based on a variety of factors, but probably the most important was the domestic resources of the country in the country itself. In this case of Estonia, it was the deposits of oil shale. As Ingrid explains, oil shale is the poor cousin of coal. Sounds bad, doesn't it? So listen to our discussion of why and how Estonia became complacent on driving a more sustainable energy transition over the past decade. To understand Estonia's challenges and transitions in energy, Ingrid points out the importance of political will, but also the price of energy. This is emerging as a common theme, the cheapness of energy. Bountiful and cheap energy stalled necessary changes. Now Estonia is attempting to move forward with a pressing need to utilize the sustainable natural resources it possesses. I don't mention enough all the great people that provide assistance to organize the interviews and the topics that we have on the podcast. This week, we can thank one of our former Central European University students, Johanna Mare Dijk, for her assistance with lining up this interview with Ingrid. A final note, this interview was done for my current role as an Open Society University Network Senior Fellow at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. The funding was generously provided to produce the podcast until the end of 2022. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. The content of each episode is great for teaching, research, and identifying how you can assist this energy transition. And now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Ingrid Nielsen, advocacy expert for renewable energy at the Estonian Fund for Nature, ELF. Ingrid, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes. And well, I have to thank you because we're in your home with homemade honey and tea and what are, these are I think apple crumble apple crumble it's, it's excellent and it's Christmas and we have a candle so it's it's really Christmassy feeling thank you for inviting me into your home and for be willing to do this interview so thank you thank you really glad to be here excellent and my first question I and I know you don't believe it but first I want to ask what is elf and the second part is what is an advocacy expert Okay, so maybe we'll start with the easy one about, well, they're both easy, but what what is ELF? So Estonian Fund for Nature is a nature conservation organization, and it has been in existence uh, starting from, I think it was 1st of February 1991, so before the re-independence of Estonia. So I think to say that it's just a nature conserv- conservation organization is, is, is a under... Uh, 
underplaying its actual role in the society uh, and as well as its role as a cultural uh, promoter, I would say. So, Mm -hmm. And so with this long history then uh, in the country, and maybe I should mention, and I think it's important to know, is so the population of Estonia is 1.3 million? Correct. About that. Mm. Okay. Maybe slightly increased with the influx of Ukrainian migrants at this point. But okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Everyone, or lots of people from yeah. Ukraine moving throughout Eastern Europe into, yeah. into yeah. Or, yes, we, we, def- we, we decided that we can call Estonia part of Eastern Europe. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Okay. okay. <laughs> Tonight only. Tonight only. <laughs> Tonight only, um, and and the um, oh, but the, with one point three million, then and it's a um, there's only a small amount of cities like uh, Tallinn's like five mm-hmm. and four hundred thousand people. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. correct. And how do people view nature? Um, if uh, that's kind of an abstract con- question and maybe too broad, but there was a need in nineteen ninety one to establish an organization, and then how has that maybe changed? Through, through the years. Mm-hmm. So I think in 1991, what uh, ecologists and biologists who actually started uh, uh, ELF uh, realized is that uh, uh, with the very rapid and uh, complete change that the country was expecting, I mean, in the beginning of 1991, it was quite clear that uh, becoming independent again is very much possible. Um, I thought I think what they wanted to uh, do is to sort of um, get a head start uh, on nature protection because it's it's not like the Eastern Bloc countries were isolated from the Western Europe. So it was uh, clear that if nothing was done, then uh, the Baltic states would be moving exactly in the same uh, direction as as all the other Western countries. And I believe that the nature conservation was one of the main concerns concerns for many uh, people in Estonia. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk about what has happened in those, like in those 30 years, it's definitely that, that some of the emphasis has moved from uh, species protection towards more general topics like climate change. And that's why Estonian Fund for Nature now has a position for a renewable energy expert. And Okay, yeah. no, no, excellent. And um, yeah, we'll get into this, but maybe part of that is around using biomass. And Absolutely, yes. Debate. So, so mm-hmm. the forest is the central topic for Estonian nature organizations, majority of them actually. So yeah, uh, how we manage our forests and what we do with, the, with this resource, this natural uh, resource that actually by our constitution belongs to every citizen in Estonia. And this is one of the main concerns for, for us, at least. Okay, we'll, we'll go into the energy topics in a, in a second. But I actually wanted to start off a bit more on your background. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite an international background. And I think it's really interesting to discuss uh, how you, why you moved away from Estonia and then why you came back as well. I think a lot of people, this, this could resonate with them too. Um, so maybe you could talk about uh, maybe finishing university and then how did you and where did you go after university? I did not finish university oh, you the didn't. first time around. No, oh. because, all right, so it's a long story. And I think uh, uh, I was just part of that uh, first generation of Estonians who was like really keen to get abroad any possible means and not so much for maybe in my personal case, not so much for, you know, for the monetary reasons behind it or the financial motivations. 
But for me, it was more like I need to see uh, what life is like elsewhere. Because 90s were not an easy time in Estonia. You could definitely see, uh, especially with the influx of uh, advertisements and, you know, MTV and then life elsewhere was different. So you were really keen to uh, try it out, to test yourself, to sort of go and really explore the world. Uh, and I don't know exactly the number of Estonians who left in the early 2000s. Uh, I was one of them. Okay, great. <laughs> and I decided not to finish my degree in sociology because I was also slightly disappointed with the education system in Estonia back then. So I got an opportunity to go to Italy uh, for a short three-month course. I took it and I didn't come back. <laughs> for 15 years after 15 that. 15 years. Yeah. And what, what did you do in Italy? So in Italy, um, it was an uh, impact, uh, I would say, uh, with real life of, uh, of impact with the old society, so to say. And um, uh, after I had finished my course and uh, I worked odd jobs, because apparently when you go abroad uh, with no uh, uh, credit to your name, no cousins here and there is quite difficult. But yeah, I stayed in Italy for nearly three years. And then I had met, by that time, I had met my uh, husband and we had moved. We actually moved uh, to Singapore to oh, really? continue my grand tour <laughs> of the world. <laughs> Great. And what, what did you do in Singapore? Well, in Singapore, I got to be the housewife. Okay. Because uh, uh -huh. it was my uh, husband's job that brought us there. And, and uh, that's where one of my daughters was born. So okay. uh, uh -huh. it was a very brief uh, year and a half. So I couldn't uh, explore it further than just the culture encounter. You're a little busy with baby. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, that takes away a chunk of time. <laughs> yes. But I enjoyed it. It was an opportunity that I didn't expect to have. So, mm -hmm. And after that, we moved to uh, United Arab Emirates. Yeah. So okay. and stayed there for a longer time, so eight years. And how how was that? How was living there? I mean, it's quite different from from Europe. I'll just say in general. Have you been? No, I haven't. <laughs> I've been through Qatar. I think but, it's the more uh -huh. comfortable version of Europe. Okay. Or America, or any other uh, high end society that you can, or high end city or or environment that you can uh, imagine. So uh -huh. yes, so it's a little bit like a like a uh life removed not okay. uh, not exactly you're you're very cushioned there you uh, mm -hmm. can enjoy your european lifestyle come into contact with the uh, locals as little as you can possibly imagine but mm -hmm. i also decided uh, when i was living there that that wasn't the lifestyle that i wanted to pursue so i made it my mission to actually meet as many local people as possible and find out how they actually live uh-huh. And from mm -hmm. what I see on, because this is how I found out about everybody, is their LinkedIn profile. But from, from that, I've learned that you got into photography. I did. Uh -huh. It was uh -huh. a, one of the, uh, not the easiest way to meet people, but one of the, I think, most impactful ways to actually explore, uh, force myself to go out there, make it a mission of sorts. Yeah. And my background is in communications. I've been a journalist before. I've worked in communications for a long time. So this was just like an extension of it from writing to taking photos. Uh-huh. And, and why, why does, um, so I'm going to expand from journalism to your <laughs> present job, just so you know, I'm going to make this connection. Um, and why, why was journalism 
a good fit for you and you, that can include photography include writing it's communication mm-hmm. so how how yeah why was it a good fit fit for you i think it has a lot to do with my personality and uh, simply the fact that i love meeting very different people from all around the world and i get curious very easily so this was something that uh, i've struggled for a long time because communications is very shallow in a sense that you have a topic and you pursue it for a couple of days and then you're on to something else right but uh, at the same time it suits my nature the best as well <laughs> excellent no 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 i mean uh i i it goes with me <laughs> so <laughs> that's I why just, you're here I in my house <laughs> ha- happened to become a professor by accident and then yeah yeah right? i mean by accident glad you mentioned it a lot mm-hmm. of the things in my life have act <laughs> happened by accident just because i'm curious and I put my nose everywhere so yeah yeah i'm glad this podcast is about you and not me so <laughs> well, well accident and yeah i won't say fate but yes exactly you end up with a interesting life by by leaving home and, and going out yes and i appreciate you talking about the 1990s that's when i was pretty restless as well and yeah i went to sweden on an exchange program mm-hmm. and somehow i ended up yeah, coming back to Europe and been here since ni- 1998, I left the United States. So, yeah, this wonder lust. <laughs> yeah, you see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's, but then, but then I guess then we'll bring it back. Then you actually came back to Estonia. Yes, I did. Uh huh. And was that like a conscious decision to come back here or you just ran out of steam for other places no i've never run out of <laughs> steam it's just the covid that has put a okay. little stop to me but i came back to estonia there were lots of different reasons uh, and the puzzle really needed me to come back home for a while okay so yes. initially the plan was like okay time to tackle that unfinished education okay part right yes. not in sociology still disappointed <laughs> okay it's in anthropology right <laughs> but in anthropology yes, yes. Yes, very close <laughs> yeah okay. exactly not very far uh-huh. off and still allows me to you know occasionally dip into sociology but uh, i yes. don't need to do it every day so yeah i came back uh did that and um i mean the environmental concerns have been with me for past decade at least uh, again, it's the curiosity that gets you into the topic and mm-hmm. then it sort of, uh, I mean, once you're in, it's, it's difficult that to say, oh, I'm done dealing with the issues of nature and, and environment and how humans operated. So, uh, I have, for a while I worked in, uh, let's do it world, which is a global network, um, spans 190, uh, countries and deals with the global uh, uh, global waste issues mm-hmm. and organizes world cleanup day so there's a lot of like uh, communications work that uh, I felt I could uh, contribute to and then I uh, this starting from this year I work in Estonian Fund for Nature okay so. excellent uh, which we introduced and then you are the energy advocate or renewable energy advocate correct and what is that what is that? <laughs> so I hope the term advocacy isn't. No, no, it's like it's provocative. Yes. Okay, so maybe I give you my interpretation. Yes, okay, so so my interpretation, I, I, this is why I like the term advocacy uh, expert, is that you're out there talking about renewable energy, you're advocating for it and taking, saying how, how positive it is and the impact that it can make. That's my interpretation. 
I so wish it was like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> exactly. I think I went into this job thinking that maybe this is what I have to do. But of course, I already knew it's it's not that simple. I mean, uh, I think uh, advocacy for renewable energy is more advocacy for a new kind of economic system. Um, I mean, it's the first time in uh, many, many centuries that I see that maybe the power dynamics uh, behind energy can change. Uh, not sure they will, but at least there is this possibility. Mm -hmm. And that's what I try to do, advocate uh, for not for the political change. If I would do that, then then uh, Elf wouldn't be non-political. <laughs> okay, but, okay, yes, yes. But yes, I try yes. to bring the, uh -huh. the other aspects uh, into uh, into this energy uh, transfer transition, mm -hmm. uh, let's say. Some things that maybe people don't think about. Uh -huh. so, so, wait, you, you have a hard job, I can see already, because you're, <laughs> you're supposed to be non-political. Yeah. Hey, first it's energy. Then you're supposed to be non-political. But then you actually mentioned this key phrase that I, I really like and which I write about is power dynamics. Mm. So and that you think we're at an important point in history around power dynamics of the energy system and, and power. It's this relational power. So maybe you could talk about um, what, what are these power dynamics that you see? Well, well, that's that's I don't know if the job is difficult or my background in anthropology makes it difficult yes. because uh, studying anthropology means uh, pretty much doom for the rest of your life. Yes. Yeah, because <laughs> you it, see power dynamics. You start seeing power uh -huh. dynam dynamics. You start seeing every, everything in terms of agency. You see conflicts. You see patterns that uh, are unjust everywhere. And uh, you, I think the biggest pain of it is that you start doubting everything that you know. <laughs> Maybe it's a good thing. Often it's very uh, emotionally disturbing. How little do you know, and what yeah. what's the thing that you can do about it? You know. So, so yeah. Uh, if we talk about uh, power and energy, uh, you can't separate those two. Who controls energy has the power. Yes. It's as simple as that. Yes. Uh, it's in my last book. Oh, I didn't read your <laughs> book. <laughs> you need my book. You need I need my to book. now, right? <laughs> yeah. This is why I'm here is to write another book that's not so complicated, but because I talk about power dynamics and yeah, just the... I mean, we I can make it very simple. I mean, yes, in very simple terms, yes. what you see is that the old money coming from the power, I mean, look at Shell or look at any big energy or electricity producer in the world, they're heavily investing into renewable energy, which means that they had power before and they're going to have it in the future. Nothing's going to change. And if, we, and if we know that the big powers like that influence every decision that we make, then nothing's going to change. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe I go for how do you... I'm not so radical as that. Okay, let's just say that. So that's fine. I respect that. But how I, I, I think there's another way to look at it. Mm -hmm. And it would be from the energy poverty side or the everyday side of, of people. And you mentioned energy communities, for yes. example. So how does, how do energy communities either, we could put this in power dynamics and then we can maybe put it first in power dynamics and then put it into like the everyday basically. But how do energy communities um, con or, you know, go against this power dynamic? Mm -hmm. So who has the money or who has the resources has 
opportunity for agency. This is how I see it. Mm -hmm. So energy community is one way of uh, allowing people to be the agents of their lives to decide how do we produce energy? How do we then consume it? Do we want to consume it the way that we've had so far that any bidder on the market who pays the highest price gets it, but then we have to live with the consequences of that? Or we can make that decision within that little circle of community because it's our production and we can change it. This is ours, our energy. We decide who gets to use it and how. So sort of it's it's a maybe more democratic process that I see. The beauty of it, it's, it's definitely inherent in it. I know yeah, real life is always different than, than whatever we imagine. But at least the idea behind it is that it makes uh, energy production much more socially just. Mm -hmm. And this, this social, um, oh, there's so much there. So um, I want to talk about energy democracy, but I'll hold off on that because you brought up democracy. But on the socially just side of things, then we start talking about energy justice then. Mm -hmm. And... Um, how, how do energy, maybe have you expand more on it though. How, how do energy, because energy communities are the big thing kind of nowadays, the European Commission, the European Union supports the formation of energy communities and energy communities are seen as uh, one of these bottom up solutions. Mm -hmm. And, but how, can, can people actually cooperate enough to create viable energy communities in a whole country? I mean, in Europe, it's already mm. quite uh, very good like uh, examples of how it can work. And, and I mean, I think it's still very much an underused resource or underused idea. Definitely can go much faster than it has so far. But I also see that there's resistance towards it um, from, I think, most expected sources. Uh, one of the researches that I read uh, said that 45% of all energy uh, demand in Europe could be produced by energy communities. Mm -hmm. that's a big change in how the market operates. Yes. And I don't think people are actually bigger, like uh, bigger, uh, maybe developers or, or, uh, or whoever produces fossil fuels would like to see that change. Also because it's not supposed to happen in next 30, 40 years, but as European Union sees it, you know, our European Commission sees it in the next 10 years, it should happen. Yes. So that's maybe one of the aspects of it. But isn't there room, let me go from the other side, isn't there room for the, the other 55% to be produced by large companies? I'll of course, just say it like yeah, that. absolutely. Okay. I mean, we got to do one only. Uh, I mean, just like the energy mix needs, needs to be a true mix of different yes. solutions, yes. so need to be the, the different models that we follow to, to reach it. So I think mm -hmm. there's space for everyone. Uh, the question is... Where, Rather, is there willingness to to try and make it more less uh, or more saturated in terms of options, and then share the profits mm -hmm. amongst more stakeholders than it is right now? Mm -hmm. And um, maybe I'll hit on energy democracy just to see, and then we can move on a bit. But um, yeah, do you have anything to say about energy democracy? Because you brought about you mentioned the democratic process yeah. in, in choosing energy sources yeah. or 
technology. So I think it, uh, mm. the okay, you're not gonna like this. Is gonna be radical again. <laughs> But this is what happens when I'm asked to speak about stuff. No, I no, try no. to concentrate it, and I'm, then I sound very radical. And like, I'm just telling you my where I come from, and you tell me where you come from, yeah. and I think it's better than me just. Yeah, it's so, fine. So, yeah, I mean, if we talk about politically, yes, we have democracy. But if we talk about, for instance, our economical system, then I don't believe we have a democratic system. It's it's very much who has the who has the resources controls everything, right? Yes. Uh, if I think about Estonian example, then uh, our energy production uh, has been concentrated in uh, eastern part of uh, uh, our country, uh, in the north northeastern part, actually. So it's just one county uh, that has uh, taken the burden of this uh, very uh, uh, actually polluting industry and and uh, industry that destroys landscapes and uh, and really doesn't give that much back uh, to to community at a wider stance. Like yes, I understand it has brought jobs in, but those are low-paying jobs and not necessarily have improved mm. uh, people's lives so much. So energy democracy is important process in achieving the, you know, distributing this burden around uh, to where people actually live. So where you uh, live, you need to produce your energy because it, this is the only way how you realize that uh, what kind of a cost it really has. Mm -hmm and uh and whether you're willing to live with that cost okay so you know, it, yeah yes i would maybe i'll paraphrase and say it's tightly connected to energy communities where the energy that you are consuming you produce i would say in a local regional manner then mm -hmm. is that right and then um when you talk about then this i think would be really interesting to talk about you talk about this one county here in estonia and th this is what called shale oil yeah is right and maybe you could talk about what shale oil is and, and the environmental damage of that mm -hmm. so shale oil is the poor cousin of uh, coal so it has it has much less efficiency than uh, coal ha coal has but at the same time it's it's the resource that we really have abundantly here in Estonia. Actually, can we check this term because it's oil shale and shale oil. So shale oil is the product that you get from oil shale, I believe. So okay. oil shale is the rock <laughs> formation. I, I, I... So <laughs> Let's I, check this. Yes, yes. I'm never sure about this term in okay. English. Yeah. Estonia oil shale is used to produce electricity and shale oil. Exactly. Okay. So, so we're okay. I'll just record this. So we're going to define it, and I think I said it wrong before, and then I think anyone can maybe understand why we would get confused. But in Estonia, because I've just Googled it, oil shale is used to produce electricity and shale oil. So oil shale is what is in the ground, and after processing it, you get shale oil. Correct. Okay. So, <laughs> so let me rephrase my question then. So, in this one county, oil shale is is a deposit in the ground producing shale oil. 
True. Correct. Uh -huh. Now okay. let's hope we never forget it again because I've been <laughs> yes. confused for years. Uh, yeah. So the environmental. Well, I think first we need to go back to the Soviet Union. We can't yes. get over it. Please, I love the Soviet Union. I mean, I love talking about it, <laughs> right? I hope you don't love Soviet Union. I uh, love the energy policy of the true. Soviet Union. So interesting. So okay. just like any other um, big imperial power, also, uh, also for Soviet Union, of course, energy was one of the... Uh, main concerns and and part of its national or or yeah its program to to also sort of like uh, colonize let's say different parts of uh, of the union itself and uh, oil shale was uh, discovered in Estonia I believe in the already in the during the first um, uh, first uh, Estonian state but. Uh, uh, electricity production back then uh, didn't rely that heavily on it. But when the Soviet Union occupied us, uh, of course, they had to put all of the resources to the best of the use, right? And uh, so what happened was that because it was their, um, let's say, their uh, program, um, all sorts of different attempts to make sure that it wouldn't become a threat to their uh, political um, situation were also made. So that means that hundreds of thousands of uh, people from the rest of the uh, Soviet Union were simply shipped here to, to service this new industry. Let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. So majority of the oil shale production or, or the shale oil production uh, installations are actually uh, built in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s during Soviet Union. And very little has been done later. So also the, the grid, uh, the electrical grid was established then as it, is, as it functions right now. So everything was made so that it would service the needs of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we go to production process because especially i know for sure in the 70s and yeah it'd probably be the 60s burning oil mm -hmm. even in the united states or other countries was normal to produce electricity mm -hmm. so it wasn't until the price went up that maybe it wasn't a good idea to burn oil to produce electricity mm -hmm. but then here in estonia then burning this oil shale after it's processed for electricity happened in the past but it's still happening now that now then yes but uh, very mm -hmm. limited, oh, limited. Uh, i mean uh -huh. now with the uh, crisis in ukraine and everything and being in mayhem yes it's increasing again but starting from 2018 due to um, co2 emissions and and uh, um, pretty much demands in uh, european union uh, we've uh, significantly cut it down but that also means that we've made ourselves very vulnerable to uh to whatever is happening right now in the world, uh, whatever market does, um, whether our neighbors are kind enough to share their energy with us or not. We are definitely not able to reduce enough energy or electricity, if we want to put it simpler, um, by uh, with the limited capacity for renewable energy that we have right now. Mm -hmm. And then, so yeah, this is one of your, we can go back to your, your, your title, the ad advocacy for renewable energy comes in then is that but maybe um just because elf is is an environmental organization mm -hmm. and we talked about energy justice uh we mentioned climate change earlier um what what is the impact on this community then 
about e a moving away from shale oil or is it oil shale or oil, oil shale, shale both of them <laughs> okay moving away from both shale and oil or just or something like that uh, what is the impact on the community moving away from it because we talk about energy justice and um, wh- what about economic development in the region or mm-hmm. what what what's happening to the community there in uh that community, of course, uh, concerns of, of this changing energy uh, landscape uh, are very, uh, uh, very painful, I would say, because, I mean, uh, this we're talking about uh, um, people who have built their lives around oil shale and shale oil. Um, each of the families is connected to that industry one way or another. Um businesses that service the community are dependent that these workers have their income from it. And it's quite understandable that fear that uh, this change will just leave them out there on the dry are high. And just like with any crisis, if it's badly managed, it's strategy. If it's well managed, it's an opportunity. And I think Estonia hasn't done a very good job in communicating this as a great opportunity but has maybe in some ways left the population uh, a little bit um, alone with the topic, but not really badly. I mean, they are uh, recognizing this and uh, and uh, it, taking uh, real steps towards creating a new kind of industry and new kind of reality uh, for the Eastern, uh, Northern Eastern mm-hmm. uh, Are Estonians. there uh, maybe, okay, I don't expect you to know, but maybe you know. Are there specific government programs? Is there is there like a, a managed phase out of this, or I don't know so if much. we can call it managed phase out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually one of the things that environmental organizations have uh, drawn attention to that we're doing too little, uh, maybe slightly too late, but you know, not too too late. Um, and I think uh, now we're finally reaching that stage that the government is putting uh, in place a uh, uh, proper plan for it. And energy democracy has a lot to do with it because um, some of the organizations, environmental organizations, have been leading what we call uh, climate and energy councils or, or which are made up from citizens. So regular citizens, they get together, uh, they are given as much information uh, as possible about it, so they start to understand what are the issues and they themselves can offer solutions, what they think, or at least set expectations of what they want to see happening to their communities and, and environment as well. Right. So this is one of the, yeah, citizen assemblies has been one of the ways on how to actually introduce uh, better solutions for it, this huge It's a great, problem. great example of like why energy is so important and understanding the social ramifications. Okay, there's the environmental of that as well, but the social side of it. Mm-hmm. And do, do you think um, from the EU, because now there's this just transition fund, do, do you see that maybe recognition of the social side by the EU can assist this community in Estonia? Absolutely, yeah. Um, unfortunately, I don't know why, but uh, I think Baltics struggle with the same things a lot of the time, uh, maybe ignoring certain problems until they're pointed out to us that this is a huge issue, you got to fix it. 
we can provide some, you know, assistance with it, but you got to fix it. Yeah. So oil shale was actually uh, one of those things that the European Union said, nope, you got to stop it. So yeah, no, it's just crazy <laughs> to think about. Okay, I don't know. But then people there's like oil sands in Canada. And some people say, Oh, they're okay. But yeah, I don't know. I just think environmentally so maybe maybe we talk about the environment so much mm -hmm. more and what about the um cleaning up the environment there, there must be it must be pretty bad up there or over there i don't know what, I mean, what's the in environmental terms of like uh, yeah environmental aspect first of all burning oil shale means actually pollution rates air pollution is going up right so this is the immediate effect uh, that people suffer from but it also means that uh, digging it up uh, from underground means just like with any other uh, similar process, it means that you uh, leave huge um, plots of degraded landscape on which you can't build anything anymore because it's unstable. And um, maybe one of the attempts that ha there has been uh, is to consider those areas, you know, as as future uh, nature reservations. But then again generally the effects are so serious that you can't expect any uh, normal rate of biodiversity to return to it for maybe even centuries so mm -hmm. yeah degraded so, landscapes so so there's no government policy yet about what to do with the landscape no because biodiversity hasn't been a concern for a very long time oh. for not okay. just in estonia but i believe in most of europe uh-huh are you able this is really interesting because i mean in some regions of the eu where their coal is being phased out like czech republic um czech republic i know and germany as well there's consideration for the communities and the environment what to do uh in these former re coal mining regions um it, do you see that there's okay theoretically or it could be or there actually is connection with other with this process this just transition fund or the just transition process of with I, I'm reaching here, but I'm just yeah. kind of like thinking this makes sense that here here's a, a region that could benefit from this just transition fund, the coal phase out. Yeah. It's not coal, but it's it's similar in the impact. Oh, of yeah. The oh, yeah. That money is being uh -huh. funneled into the area. Uh, question is, what is done with the money? Because maybe the intention is one thing, but what comes out from the other end is, is different. I'm not an expert enough to say which which of those initiatives that uh, is being pursued with this kind of financing is is actually doing something or not. I know that there are re-education programs, and I believe that they they have gone uh, very well. Um, I know that uh, there's been like a social support system uh, put in being put in place uh, to help those families who need to transition. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, we we have to wait and see how they actually turn out. Whether uh -huh. they they're okay or or what's gonna happen in the in the future. No, it's it's so interesting. So it's like one more pin in the map of of Europe where a just transition and the awareness on the social side of it and governance and government side of it and engagement and with without corruption or without maybe. I just say without saying corruption, I'll just say without bad government. Like here, here's a a great example of if there is good government and governance going on in mm -hmm. a local community, uh, it can be a positive example of the energy transition helping society. But if it's not done right, or if there's a lack of things that are actually done, then it's it's an example of a region that's that's going to suffer for a long time because of that. True. 
Absolutely, yeah. And I don't think, you know, uh, you can assume that governments are any different from the people that they govern. So a lot of the times you do have to struggle with those questions of uh, not just corruption, but whether people are ambitious enough, whether they actually are able to manage uh, change and, and actually guide it. Are they to the level? Because we are talking about local municipalities, very small communities that have always done it this way. So for many people, it's very difficult to, to think uh, differently on, on how they actually maybe even guide their own people. And uh, as I think we all know, uh, humans are not very uh, successful in seeing the uh, consequences to their actions. Yeah, I mean, but it's a great example of uh, maybe uh, the need for, for training you know, the, 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 ex the experts at the local community level and involving them in more in, in the proper educational system mm -hmm. and then relying on them to... I don't know what express or state what the community wants rather than say an outside international consultancy company coming in and they, as much as they try, they may not capture what the community really needs. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't believe in meaningful change being led from somewhere else. It always needs to come from within. And for that, you need to give people not just information, but to give them ideas on how they can go about it and, and really encourage them and engage them on all different levels. So I don't think that uh, we're like a flock of uh, sheep following uh, whoever promises the best. At least I'd like to hope that we're not like that. But rather that if we're even given a chance and, uh, you know, a nice nurturing environment to discuss and to, to uh, brainstorm and to maybe, you know, just invent our own future, then we are much uh, more likely to actually create change. Mm -hmm. And then maybe shifting to Estonia a bit more general uh, and creating change, this energy transition and the area of, of more renewable energy in the mix here in Estonia. Um, wh what, is the, what is the situation now or what does the landscape mm. look like? I mean... Is everyone like, yeah, we're going to go and have renewables all over the place? Or uh, I'm being optimistic there. Or, or what, what, what is the state of things in, in Estonia in general? I think um, maybe 10 years ago there was this great optimism. But the past 10 years have shown that uh, it's very difficult when there's uh, little to no political will to actually go for it. And the here comes in, you know, if you have cheap fossil fuels, then resistance or actually there's no willingness uh, to to uh, imagine something new uh, start making really big uh, changes in the system that otherwise works really well right so um, what has happened is that for the past 10 years we've had hardly any uh, new wind uh, installations put up uh, and a lot of the times uh, there are two excuses that are usually brought one is NIMBY, not in my backyard. Mm. <laughs> Everyone loves that for some weird reason yes. to say it. Uh, and then uh, the other side of it is that uh, the cheap energy mix hasn't really forced this development along. So a lot of uh, big decisions haven't been made. And now we find ourselves in a situation where there's very big con conflict between uh, uh, nature conservation and the wish to develop fast. 
Mm-hmm. Nature conservation in in what area? Like against um, wind power or what? what against do you mean by wind that? power mostly. Okay. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. so there's also uh, resistance mm-hmm. towards big solar parks as well, uh, due to the fact that they compete often with uh, um, agricultural uh, lands. Uh, and uh, in wind energy is um, a conflict between uh, forests, or our last natural forests, and and the uh, necessity to develop renewable energy mm-hmm. and um, I mean in the past 10 years the solution as far as I know is these interconnectors with other countries Finland yeah. uh, Latvia for gas and for electricity and um, how much do you think that's how, has that been a good development or a bad development or kind of just whatever it's a necessary development mm-hmm. because otherwise we wouldn't be able to it's not just about how how much electricity do we consume but it's also about what keeps our system up so up until now and i think until 2026 we're still tied to the electrical system of russia for a frequency uh, etc uh, so this is one one of the considerations of course why these connectors are necessary but i think uh even more importantly uh, and i'm not sure how well for through this is but Baltics are are seen as the future for European energy needs as well it's a little bit like I'm going to anthropology and I know a lot of people don't like it when I say but it sort of sounds like we're trying to colonize the Baltics now you mean like Baltic Sea (laughs) yes Baltic Sea but the Baltic states as well which are uh, part of that because you can't put up uh, big uh, maritime wind parks here without our permission right so for instance Estonia completed its um maritime uh, maritime uh, spatial planning in uh, July this year and suddenly there were tens of developers behind the door so to say uh, saying uh-huh. like we want to develop here majority of them are not uh, don't include Estonian investors so they come from abroad uh, from Denmark from Germany from elsewhere and I think it would be very naive uh, to believe that they are here to provide for Estonians Mm-hmm. They are here to provide for their countries, and but how do you how do you do? So this is a genuine question. With I I don't have the answer because it's a country of one point three million. Yeah. So how do you? And maybe we can talk about biomass. Or, I I mean mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but but um, it's it's such a small country. I don't mean it in an offensive way. No, no. So I mean <laughs> like a good way, like. Estonia is an energy community itself. Mm-hmm. Like you could take that approach, True. or you could still take a neighborhood or city approach. All these different. This is the why energy communities are complex, mm-hmm. like subjects, because what is an energy community? But anyways, but um, in the, with the development of the interconnectors, um, I mean, what what should what should a national? Maybe this is a better way to to phrase the question is. What should be the objective of national energy policy? Should that be self-sufficiency? Should it should it be greater interconnection? Mm-hmm. Or what? What's the balance here? Well, yeah. Well, we can't <laughs> go very far from uh, from uh, our nation-building attempts of the past couple of centuries when we talk about energy. Energy is very directly related to act- nation-making, so to say, right? And uh, of course, as you said. Uh, first option that you said energy sufficiency for your own basic needs uh, is every country's first uh, uh, first goal in in this 
energy transition that we're trying to pull through, right? So for big countries like Germany, it's quite likely they are unable to produce all the energy that is necessary to cover their current needs with their own resources. And I think it can apply to many Central European uh, countries as well, that they are highly dependent. And the Baltic Sea is very lucrative because it uh, has uh, very good winds throughout the year. Basically, there isn't a day where there isn't. And uh, that's why Baltic Sea is considered as, you know, new frontier to sort of like take over and, and, and fill it up. So occasionally when you look at the plans uh, from Sweden, from Finland, from the Baltic states, and then you have a bit of Germany who has there. And it's quite scary, actually, from an environmental point of view of how many uh, turbines are being, you know, at least imagined that can be put into the Baltic Sea. And it's definitely not for this re to service just this region. Uh, it has a grander scheme. Mm -hmm, for, for exporting. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then, then, but but maybe I, I tie it back to y your discussion with energy community. I'm sorry mm -hmm. if we're like off topic or not. No, or, no. Or, but I, I'm really enjoying this. Uh, <laughs> and it it's like, um, and I don't think, it just, I just want to explore your perspective on this because so... What you're saying then is Estonia, and it could go for other countries, and I think this is really interesting because the nation building, for mm -hmm. example, in the nation, each country wants to have energy independence or maybe self-sufficiency. I like the word self-sufficiency then is a really good way to put it um, because then they're not reliant on others. Um, even though we could say the EU as a whole really promotes this interconnection, common market, a mm -hmm. neoliberal market model. But... Um, uh, for for Estonia, uh, if if a country is self sufficient, it means that they're more directly engaged with how their like or their we could say electricity, how their electricity or heat is produced, and what steps they do domestically, not just importing. Well, in the past, cheap Russian gas, mm -hmm. um, and so in one sense, they're taking responsibility in some form or another how the energy electricity is produced and then how it's consumed mm -hmm. so then you could actually invest in energy efficiency right rather than building more production facilities mm -hmm. on the other side um i'm not sure where my question is but maybe i just say what do you think of that <laughs> i wish it were so mm -hmm. <laughs> but being a, a small country that has is de highly dependent on on its neighbors right we can say that this bill is being paid by the citizens themselves. If we look at the energy prices in the region, they're the highest in all of Europe. And we're nowhere near uh, the living standards of Western Europe still, especially when, when I think about Latvia or Lithuania. So we're picking up the bill. And uh, if, the, uh, if um, this neoliberal market uh, also is scary in that sense, because it does not provide freedom uh, for everyone to choose. It just provides freedom for the select few who actually control the resources in one way or another. So this kind of like a, mm, the, this, this system, it has built in uh, mechanisms to make sure that it's not just 
Mm-hmm. For me, it's that I, I, I know. It's how, again, I sound radical, but I'd rather like to say that I'm direct. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's <laughs> rather <fine>. than radical. <laughs> so okay. it's not a lot of people, especially in Estonia. There's this right now. There's this kind of narrative that if you talk about these issues, then that means that you are you want communism to return. I, okay. <laughs> I don't no, know. No, I'm, I'm guessing you don't. So <laughs> no, no, I'm okay. I don't think so. Yeah. I, communism, by the way, wasn't an economical system. It was a system uh, made to support uh, select few again you yeah. know it was uh, very is... egalitarian so no 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 just the human rights yeah. and everything yeah. economically so so like when that. i when uh-huh. and i think this topic is connected to energy community and you're right that the baltics pretty much is just one energy community what i don't see uh, currently is that it's an active energy community that, that understands its role and again mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's a political agenda to keep people away from energy, to really not educate them on this topic. Uh, and I believe it is so, because who has the energy has the power, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, it doesn't mean that we don't have a market-based system anymore. It just needs to accommodate both. And I don't mm-hmm. see one part of it happening. And I think that's also biggest part of my job, making sure that at least people are aware that this is happening and they have a choice and opportunity to change it or at least to demand this change yes ingrid i, th- I think that summarizes it really well especially the yeah going back to the 45 55 percent mm-hmm. split on that so it, yeah i just think yeah more people are engaged or aware of their energy consumption and how it's produced and i always feel like people because I'm always talking to people about energy. That's the only thing I talk about. But people are always talking about, yeah, I want to produce, I want to have solar panels on my house or whatever. Like they always, they hear about it. They want to have it. They don't know how to do it, this and that. Mm-hmm. But it always seems like people want to be engaged somehow at mm-hmm. some level in their consumption. Okay, and maybe some people don't want to do it at all and be engaged in it. But I mean, if your neighbors or people coming together and if if it's structured right, I, I it's, yeah, getting to the structural aspect of the energy system. If it's structured right, people don't have to work that hard, but they're aware of it. And then, it, especially in now that the market is so essentially short of electricity, <clears throat> and then then being aware of the the benefits of energy efficiency and the investment to energy efficiency, it can really benefit everybody mm-hmm. and how people live. Not even talk, well, yeah, talking about energy poverty, how people live in their homes could be improved their their well being, the the heat temperature in the house. All these things have mm-hmm. a dramatic impact when we think about being in control to some extent uh, around mm-hmm. the energy system. But I, but I think another aspect of awareness that comes with it is when you actually um, get to know how the system works, mm. you contain, you manage to get some sort of agency and power back in terms of influencing also those big developments. Currently, I mean, my heart aches when I think about how Amazon uh, has secured its, uh, you know, green energy source. So this is energy that is being, it's, it buys it, you know, it buys, I need this amount of energy, I buy it, and then it's entirely up to me what I do with it. And if you look at what uh, these, like, big corporations often do is that their practice is actually make us even more dependent uh, on those very few resources that we have left 
and and sort of like decreases our opportunities to have a meaningful and and uh, uh, nice not nice life but meaningful and and uh, good life uh, when those resources actually start shrinking, which mm-hmm. is going to happen very soon. So. I believe, uh, I very strongly believe that because people don't understand how energy production works, don't understand how it's related to the way that we operate in our daily lives, uh, how uh, how it's all interconnected. Uh, until then, uh, they really do not uh, uh, understand the necessity to influence those big systems. And if they don't, then nothing will change. We will still continue to dance the dance that the big corporations, multinationals, and big money uh, dictates dictates us to. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we'll start wrapping it up and bring this around. I think we're getting there just naturally about biodiversity mm-hmm. and health. Then, so by <clears throat> how what what are the challenge of biodiversity in in Estonia? What mm-hmm. what are the challenges? And then maybe if that's connected to energy or not. I think the challenge yeah. is that uh, we know what happened in the Western Europe while we were, you know, under the Soviet occupation and, and when we were actually enjoying the fact that our nature could could have had the opportunity to restore itself. So in 1991, when we uh, regained our independence, uh, we had this abundant resource that had regenerated itself uh, within the 80 years. And uh, instead of maybe managing it uh, properly, uh, especially in the 2000s, uh, proper plundering of it started um wait are you talking about the trees or yeah what do you mean forests okay okay, yeah yeah i'm talking about forests Uh forests are Uh huge uh, ecosystems that are full of you know 20,000 of our uh, native species the majority of them are in uh, in forests so uh the plundering started in the 2000s and now we are finding ourselves where we are just repeating the mistakes done in the west and uh, we're not doing it any better so uh, biodiversity crisis is also uh, pretty much geared into the way that we operate uh, here as well. And unfortunately, it's not decades off. We're talking uh, rapidly uh, uh, rapidly um, degrading ecosystems here in Estonia. Oh. So well. in the 1990s, a lot of trees were cut down. Or not in the 1990s, in the no. 2000s. In the 2000s. Uh, when... Oh. Uh, uh, a lot of foreign investment in this sense was put into Estonia that um, 50% of our wooden biomass currently is exported to uh, wow. heat Danish homes. <sighs> well, not just Danish, some but of our countries still, as well. Yeah, the wooden pellets yeah, are exactly. exported. Yeah, from 50%. The uh-huh. And the society is not gaining much from it because it's the... Uh, it's the business owners who do, but not the society. We just get to watch how our forests are pretty much just fed mm-hmm. to the furnaces. And, and what's the um, nature protection level in Estonia? Uh, in places, it's very good. Also mm-hmm. due to the Natura 2000 areas. Mm-hmm. So for some uh, weird chance, and, and I believe uh, hard work of my colleagues as well, uh, not just in our organization, but uh, all the environmentalists, uh, quite a big amount of, of area Estonian natural areas were uh, put under Natura 2000 uh, protection. So that's one aspect. But um, all the rest of the areas are, are seeing very heavy uh, influence of, of clear-cut logging, for instance. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if... Um, and I think this is how sort of like one of my earliest realizations of, of uh, 
big not just you know what are the personal uh, effects that people have on on in, on the environment but when i started to re how i started to realize how governments and uh, neoliberal um, systems actually uh, can make huge damages is exactly because of my international experience because i used to fly back home twice a year and every time i flew over estonia Every couple of years, I noticed this doesn't look right. First, you would see grids, grids of uh, uh, roads appearing into the forests. Then you would start seeing clear-cut areas, bit by bit, like puzzle work. And uh, that's when I came to realize that there are, there's stuff happening that regular citizens are not even aware of. And that there's a heavy economic interest into this, our common uh, resource. And no one tells us about it. And we are not even enjoying the fruits of it. Mm -hmm. So, and this would be in the 2000s yeah. after Estonia's membership to the EU? Yes. Yeah. More or less. A little bit uh -huh. earlier as well. Okay, because, yeah, a yeah. bit earlier. Yeah. Well, they knew they were joining, so. Yeah. Uh -huh. So... Yeah, there's advantages and disadvantages. Is this, and then is your organization? Because I know some organizations are are pushing to eliminate yeah, biomass, like mm -hmm. from trees from from the forest. It, to have that, I've never asked this question before, so I'm <laughs> unclear how to how to do it. But to eliminate the forest biomass from like renewable energy targets or something. It would be mm -hmm. very nice. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't think. We can, uh, I mean, you, you are in my house. I also yes. heat uh, yes. my house with uh, wood. <laughs> yes, it's great. Right here in the living and room. And for do domestic consumption, yeah. wood is a good alternative. Uh, yeah. But if we're talking about exports, it's, uh, it's a little bit like greenwashing someone else. <laughs> okay, greenwashing. <laughs> because, yeah, because uh -huh. uh, uh, what happens with our uh, pellets or what happens with our forests, they're burned somewhere else. And people actually who are uh, consuming them don't often know that uh, this is not renewable resource, not yeah. in that sense, yeah, how they believe it. So. Sustainably for Yeah, uh, it's not felt. sustainably mm -hmm. felt, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. All right, uh, Ingrid, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me and, and thank you so much for inviting me to your home too. Yeah, the night was too short. <laughs> yes, too short. I would have loved to continue. This. No, it's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. And remember, each episode is equivalent to consuming 10 journal articles, one book, and 500 charts on how to implement the energy transition. And you get it all in less, usually, than 60 minutes for each podcast. Guaranteed. I can actually say no other podcast makes this guarantee. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are most active, on the My Energy 2050 page or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.